Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future Technologies, poised to transform our lives for better or worse, are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast, and my guest is Peter DeKaiser. I almost messed up his name. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, anti-aging technology, and he's from Erasmus University. Peter, how are you doing? Pretty good. How about yourself? Good. Thanks so much for coming. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, so let's, let's talk about the work you do. I'm getting older. Everyone is. Everyone at some point will be very interested in anti-aging technology, so you know, let listeners know what you're working on. So yeah, we our goal is to uh, to find ways to purge the body of uh, unwanted and bad cells. Um, and we we discovered that as we age, we get more and more of these uh, cells. We call them senescent cells, and uh, it is known that uh, these cells are a, a driving factor for aging, at least some aspects of it. Yeah, and and and, and just in a nutshell, we designed you know new compounds to to figure a way to eradicate these cells, and in doing so. We were able to uh, reverse some signs of aging in mice. Uh, we did the bulk of the wow. experiments in fast-aging mice. And, uh, for instance, these fast-aging mice that we use, they are based on human syndromes of accelerated aging. And they look oh, like... Like, um, like, what, like progeria and things like that? Yeah, kind of like that. So progeria is one type of uh, accelerated aging. We, we use yeah, a model called trichotiodystrophy. It's also a human syndrome. And essentially, these mice, they uh, lose their hair rapidly, and they, their tissues malfunction, so they have massive organ failure. Uh, and for instance, they're immobile, kind of like uh, like old people. Like they, uh, hmm. they, these mice, like old people, like old mice also, they don't you know, have the same exploratory behavior anymore, like their young uh, siblings or counterparts. And... Um, yeah, so we, uh, we we found that by using these these compounds that eliminate these senescent cells, uh, we can make them run faster again, uh, and that's a, a chronic effect. So you, it lasts up until a month after the treatment, for instance, and we can give them uh, their hair back to a degree, and uh, their tissues also function better again. Yeah. Well, tell me about um, what happens when cells become senescent cells. Like, what happens in our bodies, and why do we why do we age? That's a big question. So there are several, uh, you know, paths to Rome, as we say, uh, for aging. And we, I think that one of the major drivers of aging is uh, the accumulation of damage to our DNA. So each each day, each uh, cell in our body uh, is is damaged by about fifty thousand damaging events. And these are the majority of these are repaired sufficiently. But every now and then, uh, one thing slips through to to the net. And uh, yeah, as we get older, that means that we have more and more unresolved damage on the DNA, and that we think is actually one of the major causes for the noise that we that our tissues experience uh, during aging. So uh, then you can wonder why, you know, but we usually compare right. that, for instance, to uh, rust on, uh, on equipment. It's like the buildup of rust. So a little bit of rust isn't so much of an issue, uh, but at some point it just becomes so much that, uh, yeah, that the equipment malfunctions. That, that's kind of how we visualize DNA damage. And then you can wonder why has that been so problematic in, in, in uh, organisms. And that's because we think that too much DNA damage leads to this uh, so-called senescence response. So there's a threshold of how much a cell can handle. 
And once there's too much of this damage, and it's usually at around age 65 and up, we see that there's a massive buildup of these uh, senescent cells because there's so much damage in the body. And yeah, so that leads to a buildup of senescent cells. And the rest I just explained, we think that that actually feeds forwards aging and age-related diseases. Um, yeah. I have, a, mouse mold, I have a quick question here. Faster. Okay, Chris Fetzer, I'm yeah? sorry. Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, from what I know, cells die apoptosis so and also you know i cut my finger it heals young people heal better than older people what changes though we still have cells we still have our body processes how come we seem to heal really well and really fast for a while and then things change what's what do you think is going on do these senescent cells refuse to die are they like cancer cells you know what what have you found by studying this so actually, the original idea was that as, as soon as a, dam, a cell becomes too damaged, it will uh, apoptose, so it, go, it goes into cell death. That is true, but actually that's only one part of the coin. And the other part is that the cells can then uh, enter senescence, so they can go into hibernation. And uh, for really for a long time, it wasn't known uh, how some cell types choose to go into cell death, and the other ones chose choosing to go into this hibernation system. It, it was known that it occurs, but the molecular mechanisms were uh, were unclear. Um, uh, to come back to your argument about the wound healing, yeah, as soon as we we make a cut, for instance, in our uh, in our skin by accident, and then around the site of injury, you get these senescent cells, and the idea is that they have a transient benefit in the healing process, so they secrete all sorts of factors that aid in the in the closure of the wound. Uh, but then, when the wound is closed, then at some point the immune system comes in. And then they uh, destroy those senescent cells, and everything comes back goes back to normal. Now, as we age, this system malfunctions more and more, and that's also one of the reasons why we get more and more of these senescent cells. We think, at least. Um, yeah. So uh, again, um, as we get older, you also see that the body is that cells are less and less inclined to die. So older cells are more resistant to damaging cues. The young cells actually, and they tend to go into the senescent response more response more easily. Um, what we did is we actually tried to figure out what's the difference in molecular mechanisms, like going from cell death to hibernation. Uh, and and to do that, we yeah we basically performed large scale omics experiments, uh, and then we found out what are the differences. And by using that knowledge, we, we were able to uh, identify one protein, FOXO4, as being one of the pivots uh, between death and hibernation. So if we play with this protein, we could actually switch the balance from apoptosis to, from senescence towards apoptosis. Um, yeah, oh, and then, interesting. Yeah, so taking out an entire protein is quite challenging. So therefore, we decided to, decided to make a compound that could basically uh, interfere with the mechanism uh, of this protein. And in doing so, that then led to the result I just described, that we could eliminate these senescent cells. Interesting. How many different cells do you believe control, well, be, become senescent, or um, does every type of cell in the body become senescent, or only certain kinds? So there is a difference in origin, indeed, in, uh, in, 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 what's the, in which cells can become senescent. So we think immune cells rarely enter senescence. They usually tend to go into apoptosis. Um, but for instance, epithelial cells, so things, cells on the, yeah, on, the, on the surface, for instance, or in the body, they, they rarely tend to go into apoptosis. They have a preference for going to senescence. So there is definitely uh, a preference built in in the type of, uh, of cell. 
And then also the type of damage is important. So, for instance, UV radiation uh, that tends to actually kill the cells, whereas, for instance, uh, yeah, gamma radia- radiation, uh, such as for uh, X-rays or uh, or, uh, or CT scans, uh, that actually tends to p- uh, push the cells into the senescence response. But as we get older, it's it's known that we get more and more of these senescence cells, and that's by spontaneous DNA damage. So uh, we think that early in life you see more apoptosis, and late in life you get more of these senescence cells. Yeah. Interesting. So you, what's the name of the protein? Is it FOXO what? FOXO? Yeah, FOXO4. FOXO4. And, okay, so yeah. by so what's the protocol? What are you doing to the mice and, you know, how does how do you imagine that it's working? Right. So uh, we find that these cells, these senescent cells, specifically uh, accumulate this FOXO4 protein, and then when we took out this FOXO4 protein, those cells died. So again, this is not very applicable to humans, and that's why we decided to make a peptide. And uh, we knew that this FOXO4 protein works by keeping a second protein at bay. So P53, that's the, that's its binding partner. The P53 can do two things. It can actually do cell death and it can do uh, survival and rest. Uh, and and FOXO4 is essentially uh, the break on the death response of this protein. So we, by taking out FOXO, this P3 protein signals the cells towards cell death. That's the mechanism. And what we decided to do is we uh, designed a peptide that could do the same thing. So it could actually break this interaction between the two. And in doing so, P53 is unleashed, and it eliminates specifically those senescent cells. And, yeah, then that's the molecular mechanism. We, we nicely showed that that works in vitro, uh, so in cells, essentially. Uh, and then we went to the mice, and we did three things. Um, we used one model for chemotoxicity, and then one for accelerated aging, and one for fast aging. And in all those three models, uh, where senescent cells are highly present, we could see the health span benefit by adding this peptide and eliminating these senescent cells. So you add the peptide, it's a, you said it's called P3? No, the, the peptide we call, uh, yeah, the scientific term is focused for DRI because it's a peptide that is in, oh. a, yeah, it's in a modified version. It's called D-retroinverso. It's, it's a chemically modified peptide. And we also call it Proxofim. That's more like the, the easy lab name that we use nowadays. Yeah. All right, so I apologize if I missed it. By <clears throat> administering this peptide, it increases the production of P3 or it suppresses no, no. something else? Sorry for uh, for not explaining properly. Um, so in these senescent cells, there's this complex of those two proteins present. So FOXO and P3 are both present and they're actually uh, associated with one another. And as soon as you take out FOXO or you add this peptide, then P3 is released. Uh, so mm. normally, by because they are together, P3 actually maintains the survival of these cells. But by now adding this peptide, P3 is released, and the cells actually go into cell death. Why not just uh, give someone P3? Uh, well, actually, you can also activate P3 by uh, other sources, but that would be in all cells. And uh, the good thing about mm. this peptide is that it only influences this interaction, and that's only present in these senescent cells, as far as we know, at least. So... Uh, yeah, it's much safer in that sense. There are right, other okay. anti-senescence drugs, and they target proteins that are also present in other cell types, and they are known to be very toxic. But so far, what we've seen for this peptide is that it actually is quite well tolerated. We've now treated mice for over one year, 
with this peptide, and it, and they're doing perfectly fine actually. So, uh, 30 shots of this peptide uh, seems well tolerated by the mice. I think that's a big advantage of this drug that it's so specific for this for this subset of bad cells. Interesting. So you have to give the mice this on a regular basis, and if you, what happens if you stop giving it to them? Do they go back to the aging process? Yeah, so we've done that in the fast aging mice, and they they indeed also accumulate these uh, these bad cells at a rapid pace. And indeed, there you see that some of those uh, beneficial effects are transient. So that might also be because they accumulate those senescent cells again. We haven't done it in naturally aged mice yet, so that's uh, something which is still on the horizon to do. Um, yes, yeah, so I, I cannot really tell you how long-lasting these effects are, but we do think that because we wipe out those senescent cells, there is a permanent effect, not just some transient response. Yeah, you're not trying to make the mice immortal. You're just trying to maybe take them back in time X number of years, right? Yeah, exactly. That's one of the criticisms. Well, not necessarily criticism, but one of the comments we always get is like, uh, yeah, are you trying to make us live 5,000 years? And that might be a side effect if you take if you make beings healthier, they might also live longer, but that is then a secondary consequence. Um, and I think that distracts also from what's re- from the realistic discussion that we are nef- we finally have something now that uh, can restore health span in, in mice that are already aged. So we didn't do anything to them until they are in the equivalent uh, of human years, uh, 80, 90 years old. And then we start treating mm-hmm. them, and then actually we could improve their health. So that is quite attractive. And then we're not trying to make them live forever. It's just uh, that we want to ha- want them to live a happy life at the end of their days. So if we can do yeah, so that's for, interesting. for humans. It's, it's, I don't know how old the term or how prevalent it is, but when you say the word health span to people, do you get blank looks or is it just they intuitively grasp the word? Do you find many people uh, sorry. even think of that yeah, concept? In the aging span? field, this is becoming a bit of the, um, yeah, the, not the popular term, but so far... Back in the 90s, everybody was doing lifespan experiments, really, right? So everybody was trying to make organisms live longer. And at some point, we realized, yeah, they live longer, but they're super unhappy. For instance, all these experiments mm. were done in, the, in worms at the time, for instance, C. elegans. And then they, they, they lived maybe twice as long, but they looked super unhappy. So then at some point, we started <laughs> wondering, maybe this is not the, the right way to go. <laughs> so then uh, nowadays, health span is more like the buzzword. Uh, and it essentially means uh, restoration or promotion of health. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, because I remember I read about the oldest woman <clears throat> ever documented. It was like Jean-Marie Calumet. She lived to be 122 yeah. and a half. But, you know, yeah. she looked yeah. terrible. She couldn't hear. She couldn't see. And, you know, like I, I have a dog. He's now 15 and he's blind and he's deaf. And, you know, you're right. Yeah. I mean, this quality of life, I guess they used to call it. But now it's health span versus just lifespan, you know? Who wants to live on like a a grizzled old vampire for 200 years if yeah, exactly. you live That's horribly, it. you know? So, yeah, I mean, now they already say 50 is a new 30, right? Or 70 is a new 50, if you like. So things are already much better than uh, the previous generation. Um, but I think, you know, there's also discussion now whether we could actually live longer than 120. If you look at the number of people... We call them centenarians, like uh, those are people that are aged 100 uh, or more. Then you see that percentage-wise, they haven't actually accumulated in the last 30, 40 years. So that argues, even though we every generation tends to get older than the previous generation, uh, we don't see an increase in the number of exceptionally long-living people, which suggests that maybe the body is just not hardwired 
to make it past 120 years of age. Uh, that's, that's actually quite an interesting uh, debate at the moment in the aging field. But let's say that that's the case. Let's say that 120, maybe 130 is the max. If you can then age until, let's say, 129, and only then you become frail and sick, that's great. If you can still go out on the streets and play baseball with your great-great-great-grandchildren, uh, I think that right. would be fun. That's true. <laughs> so how much of an effect can you quantify it on the mice? How much better are they off when, you, when you're giving them this peptide? Like what, what behaviors or what uh, physical characteristics, you know, what's your estimate on how much better they are? So we, um, in the fast-aging mice, so it has to be noted that the majority of experiments we did in those fast-aging mice, there we see that the fur uh, turnover was actually amazing. Then they actually regrew the majority of their furs. They're almost bald, and they regained that actually. So I think that was very promising. Uh, we don't see a that robust in naturally-aged mice because they don't lose their fur so much, so that the effects were less uh, stringent. In terms of physical activity, we've, we observed about a two- to three-fold uh, change in physical behavior, and that's that's voluntary behavior. So we usually put the mice then in cages with running wheels, and they run at night. So when we are not around, and you can record this, and then uh, yeah, naturally aged natural mice, young mice run about uh, ten kilometers, which would be the equivalent of something like seven eight miles a day, uh, and uh, their their aged counterparts run about one tenth of that. And this we could actually restore two to three fold, wow. and that's then after one round of treatment. So that's actually three shots. And then a month later, we could see that, uh, that increase. Now, it doesn't happen in all the mice, so we actually are still puzzled like by the effect why some mice do respond and others don't. But if you pull all the data together, then on average, there's at least a two- to three-fold uh, restoration in running wheel capacity. So we, we were very excited by that. We made a little dance in the lab. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's amazing. Um, hmm. So they can do that. What about their appearance? For, you know, I don't know how old mice look, but what other things did you notice? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, fur is, is is one of the obvious things. So we were initially looking for uh, changes in tissue function. That was the goal of the experiment. So we were collecting blood samples and trying to measure all sorts of metabolites in the blood. But then we noticed, like halfway in the experiment, so the original experiment was about to last a month. So we treated the mice, and then a month later we would look for those uh, uh, values in the blood. But then halfway through the experiment, we noticed that the fur was just regrowing like crazy. So that was actually, yeah, that was, uh, that was a very uh, obvious effect. It was something which we were not purposefully looking for, but it was impossible to miss. Uh, so that was one. And then while handling the mice, you have to yeah, kind of understand that these mice have been in the lab for 20 years. So we have technicians that are familiar with the behavior of these animals. And they actually came to me like, hey, when I want to inject the mice, and they want to walk away. Typically, you can put the mice on the on your bench, go for a cup of coffee, come back, and it would still be there. Now, the, these mice would actually walk away. And if you put them then in an empty cage, for instance, they start exploring again. So that was very new behavior that they hadn't seen in these mice. So uh, those were all unexpected events uh, that were just uh, very obvious to see. Um, and in terms of uh, the kidney function, we could actually, of uh, tissue function, we mainly focus on kidneys. We could actually also see that uh, the renal filtering capacity improved again upon this treatment. So that was the actual goal of the experiment. And by looking for things that are in the blood that shouldn't be there, so urea should be, for instance, in your urine. Um, but actually, when uh, we get older, then the kidneys function less and less properly, and you get it in the blood. And that's what you see with aging, also in fast aging. And this we could actually completely restore mm -hmm. this peptide. 
So we are very excited about that. And again, this is all in in mice, so it's not the elixir of life yet for humans, but it's at least a great uh, great uh, beginning. Yeah. Do you worry about um, doing interviews and getting publicity? I mean, this sounds like something people would literally, you know, do anything to get. Yeah, so that's why I already tried to nuance it a little bit. Uh, again, it's not the elixir of life. It's uh, something we've seen mm. in, in mice, mostly in fast-aging mice. That being said, it, is, it does look promising. Um, there are actually people now in the United States uh, that are experimenting with self-medication. And right. actually, you can buy it now in, uh, in various stores because it's not uh, the production of the, this, this peptide is not protected by IP or anything. So there are companies that sell it, and, and these people are just taking it, actually. So uh, outside really? of the legal medical system, people are just injecting themselves with it. And actually, they are cool. reporting that they get more hair and run faster. So it's actually quite exciting, <laughs> even though I think it's uh, also very dangerous. But yeah. yeah, because it hasn't gone through clinical trials. It hasn't done any of that stuff. So interesting. So you know what? It's I don't even know the legality of it. You know, at least you guys are not doing that. But yeah, are you so able that, that's to the thing. use? I'm, I'm very worried about it because we've also done trials with the mice, especially those very frail uh, mice, the the, the, extra, the very fast aging mice, especially the females that are very tiny. There, we we did notice at some point that you can go too far. So we scaled down the dose that we use in the mice about eightfold because in the beginning we were seeing you know mixed effects, and then we went down, and then wow. the effects were much more robust. But people are just experimenting on themselves without even acknowledging the conversion factor from mouse to human. So usually you can use 13-fold less in humans than you would do in mice. But some people are just completely ignoring that, so they're scaling up one-to-one. -one. It's very dangerous, I think, and I hope that they don't get into any trouble. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, but you understand. I mean, again, we're not saying their behavior is good, but it makes total sense that... Uh that people would do that because it's such a, you know, it's people's lives. I mean, that's, that's part of the difficulty yeah. in waiting for uh, clinical trials to come through, you know? Exactly. So that actually, I think is spot on what you're saying. I mean, the, the official legal route would be 10 years or so. Right. And, uh, especially we would like to now go to the clinic for patients suffering from end stage diseases. Like, uh, we, we find very good effects with this compound also in late stage brain cancer, for instance. So we want to go to the clinic for that. But even there, it would take three, four years before we are ready to go. And that's just too long for some people, and I can respect that. So if people yeah. can get it for so easily, uh, yeah, there's a company in China selling this relatively uh, at an affordable price. Yeah, if you can just get bulk amounts of that at, the at such a cheap price, I can understand why they would uh, you know, experiment on themselves with it. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Strange. Are you um, allowed to look at, even though people are using it and they shouldn't be, are you, can you use that information to inform and guide what you're doing? Or it's you're not even allowed to think about it? Will it change how you do things? You know what? I don't know. <laughs> I think um, we, we are very careful with this, obviously, because it's also, um, you know, the effect that people, are, that people might report can be all due to a placebo effect, for instance. So I'm, in that sense, also not too keen about it because of, uh, for the scientific reasons. Uh, therefore, I'm not reaching out to these people yet. I'm only discouraging them from doing it. Uh, I think actually uh, a proper clinical trial needs to be conducted in order to make sure that the effects that, uh, that we might see are true. That's also why, of course, these clinical trials take so long, because it's complicated to perform them. 
Um, so I still, like I said, I still think we should first test this for people uh, with nothing to lose, and that I mean in a good way. So we actually see beneficial effects of this peptide for a number of end-stage diseases. So we might actually improve the lives of these people with, with this peptide. And sec- the second effect would then be that we know what are the safety concerns of this, uh, of this drug. And if this is acceptable, then we can actually start enrolling it for less severe diseases or, or just natural aging. So we've been approached by so many healthy people in their, say, 50s, 60s that want to take it. I think it's really dangerous at the moment because we really do not know uh, if there are any long-lasting uh, negative side effects. And I think we will find well, actually, I, ironically, if you're really, really old or in trouble, you don't care if there's long-lasting side effects. Yeah, no, that's why I, I think if last, we do this for end-stage disease patients, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. That, so mm-hmm. that's why I think for, for, for healthy people, that some people come to me and say, oh, yeah, just I have a little bit of boldness and I want to take this because I think you can regrow hair. Then I think it's, it's you know, if you're in your 50s, it's, I think it's a bad idea. But if you're a late-stage uh, brain tumor patient that has half a year to live, then I fully right. agree. You don't care about uh, the 10-year uh, effects. Yeah. So that's hmm. actually what our strategy would be. Huh. Are you allowed to put out any uh, data on what you've done? or how, Have you put out any data on the dosages you've given and the results, you know, whether they were good or bad, to you know, act as unsanctioned or unofficial guidance for people that do it on their own? Or you can't even no, go I near that? If we, so for the mice, we are always very open about what we tried and, uh, and what worked. That's uh, usually we inject it into the bloodstream, and it works really well. Um, for the for humans, we have actually not uh, put any data out there, just for the same reason that I think it's, it's dangerous if people start doing it. And you, I, actually, those people that are injecting themselves, they put it everywhere. Like some guy put it in his veins, the other one put it in oh. the fat. Um, so it's becoming a little bit of a random experiment. And also since they are self-reporting... <laughs> Again, I think it's mostly maybe a placebo effect. You know, you want to get healthier, and you're excited about the experiment. So yeah, and two weeks from uh, from the start, I felt so amazing. Yeah, of course you felt amazing because that's what you wanted. So <laughs> it's in that sense, uh, I, I'm, for, yeah, it, it's it's very dangerous to interpret those results. And this is why you should really have uh, an, a double-blinded study uh, with with a control group that has uh, fake peptides versus ours, for instance. And then see how people report and see if the effects are real or not. I think this is really critical that we do things the right way. Right. It's not yeah, because definitely. I don't want to. There's a reason to. for. Yeah, I, I understand. This. Yeah, it makes total sense. Okay. Uh, last question. What What do you? What's next for you on the roadmap for 2017 and 2018? How soon do you think that you're going to be working on um, naturally aged mice? And what are some of the other steps that you're looking to take in the research? So naturally, aged mice we did in a two degree. I mean, we are expanding those cohorts. We are doing now, a, like I said, a, a very long-term experiment where we uh, want to feed the mice this peptide or inject, I should say, uh, and then until end of life. And then we hope to see if they are doing better until the end of life. Um, we actually have a popular mainstream newspaper following that experiment. So there can be absolutely no way we cheat this because they follow everything uh, about these, uh, these mice. Um, so that's actually ongoing, and uh, yeah, I, I hope to have that finished by the end of the year. Um, and then in terms of translation, we hope to uh, to get a small company going, raise some money to do some more tuck studies in uh, in other animal models, and then we hope to go into the clinic for those end-stage diseases that I discussed. So uh, yeah, again, uh, especially late-stage brain cancer, 
we, we receive the samples from patients quite a lot, and about 80% of the samples uh, seem to be sensitive to this peptide, and we know why, because they, they make those FOXOP3 complexes that I talked about. So as soon as you have a, a cancer that makes that and it's wild-type for everything, uh, yeah, then it might actually work uh, to, to, to kill them with this peptide. So for those, um, for those late types of late-stage cancer, we hope to go into the clinic. This may still take two, two three years before we are ready. Um, yeah, but we, we hope to get going with the preclinical talk studies by the end of this year. Yeah. Okay. Well, very good. Well, how can um, people, interested parties, find out more about your research and maybe read the papers about, you know, what happened with the mice? You know, what are good places for them to go? Right. So uh, for, the, for the past studies, uh, we just published uh, the paper in Cell. Uh, so if you, dare, if you Google my name in Cell, you'll find our latest publication. Um, and I must confess that we have not uh, actually put a website up for the new studies yet. This will happen soon, uh, simply because we, we are still in the making of, uh, of all of this. Uh, so I would, I would just, uh, yeah, there's, there's a place called ResearchGate. That's, that's, a, that's a portal where you can actually follow uh, news updates on studies. That would actually be good to follow. And uh, feel free to, uh, to look for my LinkedIn page, for instance. And uh, I also post uh, updates there every now and then. So, yeah, and okay. I, I, we hope to have a, a professional website up and running uh, for this drug soon as well. But uh, this is still in the making, as I said. Well, Peter, thank you so much for coming, and uh, I hope that I may live long enough to uh, talk with you again in about six months and see your progress. You know? <laughs> All right, likewise. Thank you for inviting me. You've been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.